I will invite you before we go to the sermon to recite our faith together, which is summarized in the Apostles' Creed, and the words will be on the screen. So let's do it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you who might be new to Hillside, my name is Kevin Krondike, and uh, I'm the Director of Worship Arts here at Hillside. So normally on a Sunday morning, you would find me behind a guitar leading the music portion of the service. Uh, but this morning, I've traded in my guitar for this fashionable neck-choking device. <laughs> no, but in, in all seriousness, it's a privilege to be here this morning and to open God's Word and uh, to, to dig in it together to see what God has to speak to us this morning. And if you haven't been with us this summer, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter, and um, we've been journeying through that chapter by chapter this summer. And, and we've seen and we've learned so far that Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, is the author of this book, and he wrote it to a group of Christians who were living in a culture that was increasingly putting pressure on them to conform to the ways of the Roman Empire in which they lived. Now, many of us today may also face similar pressure to compromise our faith or to compromise our values in the culture that we live in today here in the United States. But before we jump into today's passage, I think we need to step back and we're going to take a look at the life of Peter. We're going to spend some time here this morning because I think it's important to understand a few things about Peter's life that's going to help give us some insight uh, into today's passage. So I'm going to ask for some help from our kids this morning and Kids, the first service kind of bombed on this, so I'm expecting a little bit more from you. Um, parents right now, turn to your kids and tell them when the preacher asks a question, it's okay to answer out loud. So t- tell your kids that right now. Right? Okay, good. Good. Terry, it's okay. Terry Vister, it's okay to talk in church, right? Yes, you can, you can talk back to me. Good. Um, so kids, if you are, in, if you're, kids rock kids, elementary kids. You guys are here in the service. You're going back to school soon. You've got to get used to raising your hand again, all right? Tell me something you know about Peter. Anything you remember from the Bible about Peter. Raise your hand. Yeah. He was a disciple. Great. Perfect. Anybody else? Back there. He was a fisherman. Is that what he said? Great. Anybody else? Way over there. He denied Jesus three times. Awesome. Any other kids? Anything you know about Peter? Or a middle school student or high school student if you want to jump in as well. Anyone, anybody else? Is that? I mean, Peter's a pretty major character. There's more about him in the Bible than this. No one? All right. Well, we'll help you out here. There's five things. Oh, yeah, you got one more over there. Say that a little louder. 
Next time. We'll get you next time. Okay. It's good. All right, five things that I want to highlight from Peter's life, and you hit a couple of them. The first one is that Peter was a fisherman before he followed Jesus. Let's look at the story of, of when, Jesus, or when Jesus calls Peter. So in Matthew 4, verse 18, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, who wrote the book we're going to look at today, and Andrew, his brother, throwing a net into the water for they, were, they fished for a living. So Jesus called up to them. He said, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Now, I think most of us today, we kind of miss what's happening here. There's some cultural things going on here that are significant to this story. If you're like me growing up, I kind of pictured this story in my head. Um, Jesus was a white man, and he had a beard, and he was wearing a white robe, and he kind of glowed as he walked along the beach. And then, you know, Peter and Andrew are just fishing, and they see him, and uh, they kind of like, whoa, who's that mysterious dude? And then he says, come follow me, and they just kind of like, okay, (laughs) you know? That's kind of how I pictured it. Maybe you pictured it totally different, but that's not probably what's happening here. In order to understand what's happening, we need to understand um, kind of the Jewish educational system and how kids those days learned and what they learned. Um, So two things I want to point out about the Jewish educational system. The first is that uh, higher education was really only for rabbis who were in training. Everyone else pretty much learned their family business. So like going to high school and going to college, not common in that day. Only those who were going to be rabbis or teachers would go on to higher education and and learn. And because of that, the second thing, um, that rabbis were the most revered and respected people in society. Everyone looked up to them. They were the smartest people, the most intelligent people. And they kind of were the leaders of the communities. Everyone just, wow, you're a rabbi. It was really cool. So in order to go through this training to become a rabbi, to become one of the most respected people in society, um, you had to go through a lot of schooling, and this is kind of what school looked like. Um, from ages 5 to 11 uh, was what they called Beit Sefer, and this was a schooling for pretty much, everyone probably went to this. Uh, boys and girls would go to school, um, and the scriptures were the only textbooks that they used to learn how to read and to write. And because of that, by the time they'd finished Beit Sefer at around age 11, they had the entire Torah memorized. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. That's pretty incredible. Now, the next section in school after age 11 was called Beit Talmud. Now, only the best and the brightest students advanced onto this level of education. And by the time they were done with this, they had the whole Old Testament memorized. Genesis through Malachi. Now, like I said, only the best and the brightest go on to this level, meaning that all the other kids pretty much went home and learned their family businesses. They learned how to fish, or they learned how to farm, or basket weaving, or whatever their family knew how to do. That's what they learned. So all the 12-year-olds are going, yeah, I could be done with school now. But uh, not the case this time. So, but the, bar- the brightest and the best, they advanced on to uh, Beit Talmud. And then after that, once they had finished with that section, there was a third section called Beit Midrash. And this section, the students would find a respected rabbi in their community that they wanted to be like, and they would apply to be the disciple of that specific rabbi. Again, only the best and the brightest students can advance to this level as well. So just just a few left. And these disciples are wa- want to be disciples. They want to be just like the rabbi that they're choosing. They want to do exactly what the rabbi does. So the kind of would go like this. The disciple would come up to a rabbi, and he'd say, I want to follow you and be just like you. 
And then they'd go through a series of tests. The rabbi would just grill them with all kinds of questions about the Old Testament, about the scriptures. They want to find out, can this, can this kid be like me? Can they learn what I've learned? Can they do what I do? Be like me. And so they'd grill him with all these questions. And after the test was done, there was one of two things that the rabbi would say to the student. Two, two possible responses. The first, he might say, you obviously love God, and you obviously love the scriptures, but you don't have what it takes to be just like me. So go home and learn your family trade. Obviously, it would be a big disappointment, but there were high expectations. The other possible answer, if the student did really well during the testing period, the rabbi would say, come follow me. And for the next 15 years, that student would follow that rabbi wherever he went and learn everything that that rabbi did so he could become just like that rabbi. So back to our story of Jesus calling Peter and Andrew. Jesus is about 30 years old when this happens. Peter and Andrew are teenagers and they're fishing. So what does that tell us about them? It tells us that they're not the brightest and the best. They have not advanced to the higher levels of education. They're kind of high school dropouts. And Jesus is a rabbi. He's one of the most respected members of the community. So of course they're going to drop their nets and follow him. What an honor and a privilege to follow a rabbi. And Jesus is basically saying to them that I know you aren't the brightest or the best students in the world, and I know, but I know that you have what it takes to become like me. You can be like me. You can do what I do. Come and follow me. So I think this story tells us something very important about the kingdom of God and about Peter's first uh, moments as a disciple. Jesus is saying, next, doesn't want to go to the next slide. (laughs) Can you move it up there for me? Just the next slide. All right. Well, Jesus was saying that from the very beginning, Jesus was communicating to his disciples that my kingdom is not about you and what you can do. This is about me and what I will do through you. So I don't know if we can get that slide up there that says that. Um, So, but Jesus is saying to them, Um, that it's not about what you can do. It's not about what schooling you could do. It's about me and what I'm going to do through you. So that's the first thing I want us to know about about Peter, is that he was a fisherman before he followed Jesus, and that tells us a few things. Secondly, um, is that he identifies Jesus as the Messiah, and just a few moments later, um, he was rebuked by Jesus. Let's see if I can get connected back up here. All right, I think I've lost control up here, so if you guys can just advance it over there, or maybe, Billy, you can get me back logged on. <laughs> Sorry about that. Technology is awesome. Or I can just advance it with this, too. All right. So, secondly, he identifies Jesus as Messiah, and a few moments later, he's rebuked by Jesus. So let's look at this story. There we go. Matthew chapter 16. Um, just to set this up, Peter's ta- or Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he's asked the question, who do people say that I am? And he, they said to him, well, some call you Elijah, some think you're just a prophet. But then um, in Matthew 16, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, 
Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now notice on this passage how Jesus gives credit to the Father for this knowledge. It's not from Peter or from any other human being. It's from God. Notice the contrast here. You know, again, it's, it's God who's in control, not Jesus who's in control. And then just a few moments later in Matthew 16, this happens just a couple verses later. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he'd be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So notice again, Jesus condemns Peter for thinking in a human perspective and not from God's perspective. And this is just the exact opposite of what happened 30 seconds ago. Peter was thinking in God's perspective, not his own. And then 30 seconds later, he switches back. Again, it's not about what Peter can do, but it's about what God can do through Peter. Now, this doesn't work either. <laughs> All right. So he identified Jesus as the Messiah. That was the second thing we want to know. The third thing we want to know We'll never know. There you go. The third thing we want to know about Peter is that he cut off a soldier's ear defending Jesus. Um, This happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. Judas has agreed to betray Jesus, and he comes with a group of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And as the soldiers approach Jesus, Peter, being a smart guy that he is, takes out his sword, and he's going to fight off all of these soldiers to protect Jesus. And in the process, he slices off one of the soldiers' ear. He's got it all wrong. Jesus picks up the guy's ear and he puts it back on and he heals him and he tells Peter, put away your sword. Again, Peter's just thinking from his own mind, his own human perspective. He's not thinking about what God's plan is or following what Jesus is doing. So third, he cut off a soldier's ear. The fourth thing is that he denied Jesus three times. One of you said this earlier. Now, we kind of heard this story before, many of us. Um, Jesus and his disciples are eating dinner on a Thursday night and he tells Peter, Jesus tells Peter that before the rooster crows tomorrow on Friday morning, that you will have denied me three times. And Peter promises that that's not going to happen. Now, we give Peter a pretty bad reputation for the story. I mean, it seems pretty serious that he denies Jesus three times, and so we kind of look down on him. Peter, that was horrible. But let's think about it. I mean, at this point, Jesus is arrested, and he's on trial, and all of Jesus' disciples have deserted him. They've abandoned him, and they've run away because they're afraid of what's going to happen, except for Peter. Peter sticks around, and he follows Jesus into the the courtyard of the high priest's house, and he wants to see what's going on. Now, why is he doing this? Why is Jesus hanging, or why is Peter hanging around and following Jesus? You know, I wonder, does Peter still think that he's going to save the day and rescue Jesus? Does he think he's on some kind of like covert, undercover, mission impossible, and he's going to try and save the day and get Jesus out of there? This might explain why he denies knowing Jesus, In the past, maybe you've thought that Peter denied Jesus because he was ashamed. He didn't want to be associated with him. But I wonder if Peter was simply didn't want to blow his cover, if he just wanted to get in there, get Jesus out, and run away and save Jesus. Because still, again, thinking from his own way and not from Jesus' way. 
Now let's look at this story here in John 18 because I want to point out a detail that's in the story in, in the book of John. Uh, this is right when, P- when Peter's denying Jesus. A woman asks Peter, you're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. Now pay attention to that fire. They stood around it warning, warming themselves and Peter stood with them warming himself. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter, again standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, are you one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it, saying, no, I'm not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, he asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? And again, Peter denied it. Again, I think he might be just trying to stay undercover so he can rescue Jesus. And immediately, the rooster crows. And Peter remembers. And he knows he's messed up. He wasn't trying to. He's trying to do the right thing. But again, he's doing it his own way, not doing it Jesus' way. So the fourth thing is he denies Jesus three times. The fifth thing I want to highlight about Peter's life is that he went back to fishing after Jesus' resurrection. This happened in John chapter 21. We read about it. Um, Peter and a few of the other disciples are hanging out, and Jesus isn't there. And Peter says to them, I'm going to go fishing. We don't really know why, but I don't know. Maybe he's just given up on the whole being a disciple thing, and he's going to go back to the family trade. Maybe he's given up on Jesus. And the others, they go join him. They go fishing. And they're out all night long on the boats. They don't catch anything. And then a man walks up on shore and says, throw your net over to the other side of the boat. And they don't know that it's Jesus that's on the shore. But they listen anyway, and they throw the nets on the other side and all of a sudden catch hundreds of fish, more than they can even hold in their boat. So then they realize, that must be Jesus out there. So verse 7 of John 21. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, and he jumped in the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from the shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Now, how many of you put your clothes on before you go swimming? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why does Peter do this? It says he put his tunic on and then jumped in the water. Why would Peter put his tunic on before he jumps in the water? What's going on here? Now, again, the Bible doesn't tell us here what Peter is thinking. So I want to be clear, this is just a guess. There's no proof of what he's thinking here, but I want to make a guess as to what he might be thinking. Earlier in Peter's life, some of you may know, that he, he and the disciples were out in a boat, and it was stormy. And Jesus walks out on the water to them in the boat, and he calls out Peter. And Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. But then he sees the waves, he gets scared, and he starts to sink. I wonder, if he put his tunic on as he put his clothes back on because he's thinking i'm going to prove once and for all that i can do this i'm going to get out i'm going to walk on water over to jesus and show him that i can do it and he gets there obviously he jumps out of the boat doesn't walk on water he splashes in and he swims to shore and he gets to shore and when he gets there there's a fire a charcoal fire now they say that the sense of smell is closely tied to memory. When you smell something, it brings back up memories. You've got to wonder if, G- if Peter smells this charcoal fire and remembers how he denied Jesus just a few weeks earlier. You've got to wonder if he's feeling already dejected as he's jumped in and he can't walk on water, obviously. Is Jesus trying to bring up all the failures in Peter's life for a reason? 
Is this intentional? Maybe Jesus is intentionally reminding Peter of the times that he's failed. And maybe Jesus is saying, Peter, stop trying so hard. Stop trying to do it your way. Just trust me and let me do it. So I think with these five things, here's the summary of Peter's life. So he constantly failed even when trying to do what he thought was the right thing to do. We often see Peter in Scripture doing things his own way. He's trying to do what was right, but he often ended up doing the opposite. And Peter needed to learn that he could not earn his way into God's kingdom by doing things his own way. He needed to trust fully in Jesus. And so here we are years later, and Peter writes this book of 1 Peter to these Christians who are trying to do the right thing as they're faced with pressure to conform to the culture around them. Has Peter learned a lesson through his whole life as he writes this? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, let's see. If I was facing pressure at school or at work or in my relationships to compromise my faith and conform to what culture was telling me to do, but there was a way that I could be done with sin, I think I might want to know that. So let's look a little deeper in verse 1 here. What's going on? I think there's two ways that we could potentially read this verse. The first way is that if you suffer unjustly for Christ, then you won't sin anymore. Like look at that verse. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So if you suffer, then you're done with sin, right? Is that what it means? So that all you have to do is continue to do the right thing and people may not like you or they may persecute you, um, but that's okay. It'll help you not sin anymore. I don't know. It sounds a little too easy or too good to be true. There might be another way to read this as well. Um, and I think if you, we look at the whole life of Peter and we look at a little bit of what the Greek language is saying behind this text, we might get a little bit different meaning. The Greek, um, or the second thing that we could possibly read it as, since Jesus suffered, not us, since Jesus was the one who suffered, that sin no longer has power over those who are united to Jesus. You know, the Greek phrase that's used here is hati ho pathon. And it's translated in this text, whoever suffers, meaning like you or me or anyone who suffers could be done with sin. But it could also be translated as the one who suffers or he who suffers. And that might be pointing more specifically to Jesus and to his suffering, and specifically his suffering on the cross that has put an end to sin. So when we understand it the second way, then it's Jesus' suffering, not our suffering, that produces holiness in us. And we're united with Jesus in his suffering and in his resurrection. It's his suffering that ends the power of sin once and for all. And it also says that we're supposed to have his same attitude. We're supposed to be like him, to do what he does. We're to become just like him. The Apostle Paul writes something very similar to this text in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 7. He says, since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin may lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. So in order to be done with sin, as it says in this, this text, I think we can't just try to do the right thing all the time like Peter was trying to do, or just obey the rules. I think it's saying we need to be united with Christ we follow him. We become like him. He is our goal. 
In this text, Peter anchors himself in the example of Jesus. He's saying that we suffer not because it helps make us better people, but because Jesus suffered and we're his followers. So we do whatever he does. In a little while, we're going to come to the table this morning and partake in the the bread and the cup, which is the body and the blood of Jesus. And in the meal, we are united with Christ, united with him in suffering. That's what's taking place in this. We remember remember what Jesus did, but we belong to him, as we sang earlier. We're united with him in this meal. It's his suffering that makes us holy. Now, in the next couple of verses in 1 Peter, he goes on to kind of describe what living life united with Christ looks like. He writes, you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do, so they slander you. Now, I think often we read these kind of verses in Scripture and we, we jump immediately to the list, the list of things that we're not supposed to do. You know, because that's concrete. We can hang on to that. Okay, just don't do that. Don't, don't uh, drink or lust or immorality or any of that kind of stuff. I can, I can do that. But that misses the point of the first verse. The main point here is that we are to be united with Christ. Do what he does. Become like him as a disciple. You know, I think we know that the gospel centers on the cross. But too easily we turn the cross into a list of do's and don'ts. And this, uh, this is an illustration that uh, the high school students and I saw earlier this summer with uh, Ryan Walkus and the Bridge Street House of Prayer on the mission trip that we did. Um, so I'm stealing this from him because it fits really good in here. But we turn the cross into a list of do's and don'ts. You know, it's just a list of things that you're not supposed to do. Don't swear, don't steal, don't drink, don't have sex before you're married, don't commit adultery, don't cheat, don't lie, don't lust, don't be mean, and on and on and on the list goes. And on the the opposite side, there's a lot of things that you should do, right? You should pray, read your Bible, go to church, tithe, be nice to people, send your kids to Christian schools, serve in the nursery, eat your vegetables, vote Republican. Okay, maybe not the last one so much, just, just that's a joke. But friends, this is not the gospel. The gospel is not a list of do's and don'ts. I'll call this moralistic religiosity, and this is not why Jesus came. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus calls us to become just like Peter, to follow him. He called us like he called Peter, to follow him, to be his disciple, to become like him, to do what he does, even if it may mean suffering. And Peter wrote it early on in 1 Peter, we, re- we looked at it earlier this summer, where it says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So we're to be united with Christ, to follow him, and to become just like him. I'd like to close today by reading from a children's Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I think this story I'm going to read ties in and hits the nail on the head to what we've been talking about all morning. And it's the first, uh, first chapter in this book. And parents, if you have young kids, highly recommend the Jesus Storybook Bible. Every story whispers his name. This is the best children's Bible out on the market. We read it to our kids every night. I've probably read it through more than 10 times, and um, I've learned a ton. It's an awesome book. Um, so listen to this story called The Story and the Song as we close today. God wrote, I love you. 
He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. Because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like and to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Well, the Bible certainly does have some rules in it, and they do show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think that the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people that you should copy. Well, the Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away, and sometimes they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible. But all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait, our story starts where all good stories start, right at the beginning. See, everything centers on Jesus. Don't get caught up trying to do the right thing like Peter did a lot of his life. Don't just try living your life to obey all the rules. Follow Jesus. Be united to him because he is the center of the story and every story whispers his name. Let's pray. Jesus, you truly are the center of it all. God, we confess that so often we put other things at the center. Lord, we, we put our jobs at the center. We put school at the center or education or or sports, or recreation, or finances. God, so many things that we focus our life around other than you. And Lord, maybe the biggest thing we, we put in the center is ourselves. God, help us to take ourselves out of the center so that you are again in the center where you belong. Lord, we want to become just like you. We want to be your disciples, to do what you do, to think like you think, to, to act like you act. And Lord, you Look at us and you know that with the Holy Spirit, we can become just like you. So God, let us just stop playing the game and try to obey all the rules, but let us truly follow you the way you've called us to follow you, even when it may mean suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear these gracious words of promise spoken by our Lord. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, let us lift up our hearts to the Lord. Let us lift them up to the God of our salvation. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
eat, remember and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and said to them, This cup is my new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Don't get rid of me.
Take, drink, remember and believe that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for a full remission of all our sins. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by you will they, by your will they were created, and by your will they have their being. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. Amen. At the end of our worship, I will invite you to stand and receive God's greeting this morning. As you leave, if you need to pray with somebody, please use the prayer room at my right-hand side. And as we go from here, may the grace of God the Father, may the love of Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you in this coming week, from now until the end of the world. Amen. You may go in peace.